We've got banks failing, drama with online and mainstream creators alike, absolutely wild international news, January 6th is being whitewashed. We're going to talk about all that and so much more on your brand new Monday Philip DeFranco show. So buckle up, hit that like button if you like these big shows, and let's just jump into it. Starting with, is the 2008 crash all over again, or are people just freaking out? That's something that people were asking over the weekend because we saw Silicon Valley Bank suddenly collapse with its $209 billion in assets, making it the largest bank failure since the Great Recession and the second largest ever. And if you're sitting there like, what, who the hell is SVB? Is that a CSI unit? No, and don't worry, you weren't the only one. And that's because SVB doesn't really cater to consumer level customers, but rather to startups, tech firms, and venture capital. Right? It's where the, the likes of Peter Thiel and his buddies have money. Right? So let's break down how everything fell apart. So like most banks, SVB only has a modest amount of customers' funds on hand in cash, with them placing the rest in long-term investments, such as treasury bonds. But then the US hiked up interest rates and the bonds it had suddenly looked way worse because they were at far lower rates. And this came to a head when due to worries about the economy as a whole, many startups started to pull money out of SVB. But the issue was SVB didn't have that money on hand and the bonds that it did have weren't worth nearly as much because they had a lower interest rate, so they sold them at a steep loss. With SVB being public about their situation on Wednesday and from there, it just cascaded with everyone rushing to pull their money out. So much so that just two days later, by Friday, the California Department of Financial Protection shuttered the bank and handed its remaining $173 billion over to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So that's why you may have seen many in the tech and startup world freaking out over the weekend, or their cash seemingly in limbo. People not knowing if payroll is going to be met. Places like Etsy warning its sellers that many payments will be delayed. We also saw the stock market take a hit, but also that's in line with trends over the last few months, so it's hard to say it specifically from this. Right? On one hand, smaller regional banks all took major hits and customers began to doubt them with San Francisco's First Republic notably getting the spotlight for losing about 60% of its value. But we saw larger banks like JP Morgan Chase having been far more stable. And that might be because while SVB is the second largest collapse ever, it's actually a pretty small player in the entire banking system. Right? The argument is, sure, in the tech world, it's a major player, but it's just one sector of the economy and it's $209 billion in assets is nothing compared to the over $3 trillion places like J.P. Morgan Chase have. We've all seen the blame game beginning with politicians like Senator Bernie Sanders claiming that former President Donald Trump's policies led to this. Right, and that's because Trump signed some rules back in 2018 that lowered how often smaller banks like SVB have to actually stress test their investments, which it's argued could have possibly prevented this. But also SVB specifically reportedly had fundamental issues. Things like, and it's wild because they're a fucking bank, they didn't have a chief risk officer for eight months. And notably during that time, things have been absolutely crazy for the venture capital market. So, you know, a body there that seems to know what it's doing could have been helpful. Also with all this, we're seeing the federal government currently getting praise from both parties because of the situation. Right, and that because the FDIC quickly moved last night to solve the problem in a series of announcements saying they would be taking over the bank and covering the deposits of it and another small regional bank that similarly collapsed. Additionally, they fired all of SVB's leadership saying starting today, depositors and borrowers will have customer service and access to their funds by ATM, debit cards, and writing checks in the same manner as before. Silicon Valley Bank's official checks will continue to clear, and adding loan customers should continue making loan payments as usual. And this is an absolutely massive deal because normally the FDIC only covers $250,000 per customer account. But you have the Fed reassuring us that no losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. And that was probably added to make clear that the FDIC is funded by fees against banks and that it would be selling off SVB's assets to recoup the funds. Also, very likely because the last time the banks were bailed out, it was by taxpayers and we were understandably pissed. Although, key thing, it doesn't cover shareholders or debtors leaving some to wildly speculate that investors will start pulling out of the economy. Though on the other side, you have people arguing you shouldn't be protected from bad investments. That's the kind of risk that you're taking on. Additionally, with this, there will likely be mixed reactions to the Federal Reserve's other plan to safeguard the economy, loans to banks. Right? It's still slightly worried that despite everything it's doing, some customers still might make runs on their banks. So to help with liquidity, it's offering one-year loans for banks to get an infusion of actual cash or collateral. Although right now, it's unclear how strict it's going to be about that collateral. With all that said, President Joe Biden wanted to make sure that no one was freaking out this morning, which is why they
AD thought him and had him come out to explain all of this and add, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. You know, that come is incredibly important because really the system only works if there's trust. And based off of how the insanely rich fucks in this world handle the money, it's hard to trust it. Which is exactly why all my money is invested in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles action figures. And then, women be working. That is not the name of my new comedy special, but rather just statistics. With Axios reporting that the number of women in the workforce last month was actually higher than pre-pandemic levels for the first time, happening much sooner than experts had been predicting. With reportedly the biggest jump happening in the hospitality and leisure sector, with 105,000 of the 311,000 jobs being added in February happening there. And then, in entertainment news, we start with the question and debate of are Christians being maligned in Hollywood? With that being started by, of all people, Dwight Schrute, or rather the actor who played Dwight, Rain Wilson, who apparently watched last week's episode of Last of Us and had some feelings. Also, if you're afraid of spoilers, skip 30 seconds. Rain was talking about the character David, who identifies himself to be a pastor once he meets Ellie. Though David ends up being a very bad guy, and very bad guy is not the best way to describe it. Like in a show where you see horrific things, he might actually take the case as the actual worst person on it. Or he's a preacher, but it seems like he's actually running more of a cult. He's a cannibal. He's feeding people to people without them knowing. He tries to assault and even murder Ellie, and so you had Rain Wilson, who's actually a member of the Baha'i faith, tweeting, I do think there's an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. Could there be a Bible-reading preacher on a show who's actually loving and kind? And in response, you had plenty agreeing, saying Hollywood is dishonest for this kind of portrayal, saying that it's a tired trope to make Christians the villain, arguing it's meant to undermine faith and position the secular-minded as the only ones with altruistic intentions. Though others, shooting that take down, saying, I say this as a Christian, maybe if more people saw loving and kind Christians in their lives, that would be represented on screen. But today, corporate Christianity is given over to angry people who only preach what they personally hate instead of sharing and practicing love. Or with people arguing that maybe many Christians have this bad reputation because of misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. With people also pointing to massive scandals like the, the Catholic Church and pedophilia. With people arguing maybe predatory Christian characters will start to cease once predatory Christian practices start to cease. But others also focusing on the opposite end of the spectrum, saying, you know, there's positive representation of Christianity in Hollywood as well. With people saying, take a look at Barbara Howard on Abbott Elementary. She's a Christian woman who's a devoted teacher and colleague who's an all-around gem of a woman. With Shirley Ralph, the actress who plays Barbara, even responding, teacher, not preacher, Barbara Howard. As well as more general things like the embrace of Christmas, how everything seems to have a Christmas episode. And Rain Wilson clarified his take on Twitter today, noting that he is not Christian himself and adding that of course it's true that the Evangelical Political Coalition is doing a great deal of damage to our country, but also saying that most of the Christians that he knows personally are loving and accepting and deserve to be represented as such. But hey, I'd like to pass the question off to you on this one. What's your take on this? What do you thinking, how you feeling, and why. And then, we had Oscars highlights, with everything, everywhere, all at once being the absolute big winner, taking home Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, as well as three of the four acting categories, with a bamf that is Michelle Yeoh making history by becoming the first Asian woman to win Best Actress, Ki Hui Kwan also sending the audience into tears after he accepted Best Supporting Actor, though that wasn't the only movie making history last night. Black Panther Wakanda Forever costume designer Ruthie Carter became the first black woman to win more than one Oscar, with both of her trophies coming from her work on the Black Panther films. Another big winner was All Quiet on the Western Front, which won four awards. And as far as drama, for the night, those would be connected to the night's kind of biggest upsets. Well, you saw many people happy for her online. You also saw so many people kind of shocked that Jamie Lee Curtis beat out Angela Bassett for Best Supporting Actress. Where I'll end this segment is with a massive shout out to Brendan Fraser, who won Best Actor for The Whale, completing his Hollywood comeback. And it was cool to see because, you know, looking back, it, it's so weird that he was kind of the it man and then he just kind of got thrown away and he he has now persevered and come back. Though, I also know there were a lot of people upset that Austin Butler didn't win for Elvis. And to that, 
I would say maybe next time don't make a two hour, 39 minute movie. Which, side note, when I Googled to make sure that it was two hours, 39 minutes so I could poke the beehive, I found out that Baz Luhrmann actually said there is a four hour version. And then, an online drama news, one of the biggest things is we saw a creator by the name of Sneeko take a special L. For those unfamiliar to save you time and brain cells, you just need to know that he's kind of like Andrew Tate light. Essentially in that he echoes everything Andrew Tate says, but has like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a success. Also, he loves Nazi Nick Quintos. And over the weekend, he tried to paint himself as a noble victim, tweeting, pattern recognition. This collage is everyone who advocated for my cancellation, which the centerpiece of that collage, Charlie Moist Critical responded, holy shit, you pathetic, sensitive, soy little worm. I made fun of you for watching your girlfriend get fucked by numerous other men and also insulted you for defending child porn. That's not cancellation. That's just spitting on you for being a pitiful, sad cuck. Sneeko then seemingly trying to turn this into like an online boxing thing. Also regarding what Charlie was referencing, apparently in the past, Sneeko defended the Netflix film Cuties. And regarding the girlfriend reference that came from a podcast back in 2021, where Sneeko described going to a sex party with his then girlfriend, an experience he called traumatic in fact so much so he ended up leaving the room. And saying on the podcast, it felt like somebody was taking something from me, like someone violating my property. We've been to like four of these parties now, which is also part of the reason over the last two years, people have joked that guys fucked his girlfriend so good that it fucked misogyny into him or given his whole Andrew Tate shtick. So yeah, now both of us know all that useless information. And then this is Marissa Barnwell. She's a ninth grade student at River Bluff High School in Lexington, South Carolina. She's there with her family and they are now suing her school district for violating her first amendment rights as well as for pain and emotional distress. And that's because reportedly a staff member pushed Marissa into a wall when she didn't stop to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, according to the lawsuit, last November, Marissa was just walking in the hallway while the pledge was playing over the intercom. She was then stopped by a staff member who allegedly pushed Marissa into a wall to make her say the pledge and then took her to the principal's office. With Marissa saying, I could tell that this outrage and anger from her was very political and she targeted me because I was black. With the principal sending Marissa back to class and telling her that they would review the security footage of the incident. And looking into this, this is actually a weird, interesting story. Uh, according to South Carolina law, the pledge actually must be said every day. But students can't be punished for not participating. With the law explaining a person who does not wish to participate may leave the classroom, may remain in his seat, or may express his non-participation in any form, which does not materially infringe upon the right of other persons or disrupt school activities. And Marissa has reportedly not said the pledge since the third grade after considering whether the promise of liberty and justice was really for all. Now, according to the family's attorney, the local police reviewed the footage and decided not to investigate further. And Marissa and her family have tried repeatedly to address their concerns regarding this incident with school and city officials, even attending a school board meeting back in January to try to discuss their displeasure with how the situation was handled, but no one was willing to speak with them about it. And all of that brings us to a press conference last Thursday where the family and their attorney discussed the lawsuit, prompting the principal to reach out, saying he values his students as his own children. But Marissa's father is of the too little too late opinion. And Marissa saying in the press conference, the fact that this person attacked me and disrespected me completely just because of that, no one should have to be in school every day and have to face this person and have to face the same administration that let this happen. And so now, according to the school district's attorney, a response to the suit will be filed in the next couple of weeks. We're gonna have to wait to see how all this plays out, but you just make sure you're subscribed and uh, I'll fill you in. And then, yo, with basketball, hockey, and concerts all in full swing, and not to mention baseball season approaching, there's always an event for everyone and you're not gonna wanna miss out. And even nicer, how about getting $20 off just by using my code Phil for tickets? All made possible thanks to the fantastic sponsor of today's show, SeatGeek. With over 28 million downloads, SeatGeek is the number one rated ticketing app. And with Taylor Swift, SZA, and Ed Sheeran on tour right now, you need SeatGeek. And I say that not just because they're a sponsor, but because I always use them. Whether it be for like quick turnaround, just looking for something to do events, or something massive like the Super Bowl. Especially after the last few years, I'm constantly looking for what can I do now? But also, you gotta be smart about it, which is why SeatGeek wants to make sure that you're getting a good deal. So when you're on the app, look for the green dots. Green means good deal, red means bad. And every ticket's backed by their buyer guarantee. Plus, SeatGeek is the only site that lets you return your tickets ahead of the event with swaps. So remember, that's $20 off your first purchase with promo code Phil. Make sure you click that link in the description to download the app. And then, we're looking at a historic deal right now that could redraw the lines in the sand for the Middle East and for the world. Right on either side, you have Saudi Arabia and Iran, and in the middle, you have China. With the two Middle Eastern rivals coming together in Beijing, 
on Friday to sign an agreement saying they will reopen their embassies within two months, notably putting an end to the seven-year-long diplomatic cutoff that began when the Saudis executed a prominent Shia cleric in 2016, which prompted rioters in Tehran to torch the Saudi embassy there. And this weekend's deal also revives two earlier agreements on trade and security from 1998 and 2001. But even more notably, this turn of events is huge because these two countries have been at each other's throats since the Iranian revolution back in 1979, with them later competing for influence in post-2003 Iraq, then fighting proxy wars against each other in countries across the Middle East as conflicts spread further. Like in Yemen, for example, where the Saudi-backed government's war on Iranian-backed rebels has caused one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Or in Syria, where the Iranian-backed government's war on Saudi-backed rebels has done the same. As well as Lebanon, where they also backed opposing factions in the civil war there. And so that's why some observers are optimistic, some pessimistic, but almost all are hopeful that this deal will lead to more stability and peace, not just between these rivals, but in the region generally. With it also potentially throwing some cold water on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's reported plan to attack Iran's nuclear facility since the Saudis are off the table as a potential ally. But also, a big aspect of this deal that everyone's focusing on is China's involvement as the broker. Because it is a key thing, Beijing has steadily deepened its ties to the Middle East, with Xi Jinping hosting Iran's president last month and visiting the Saudi capital Riyadh back in December, which is incredibly important for China because it is by far the biggest consumer of Middle East energy exports. With it also investing heavily in regional energy infrastructure in recent years as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. And unlike the United States, which has reduced its reliance on Gulf oil, China is more than willing to look past human rights abuses by governments in the region. Though, uh, please don't get confused, I'm not saying Washington is some sort of beacon of morality. It often feels like the lines in the sand the U.S. draws, it, not really based on morals. Right, I mean, it's funded the Saudi war in Yemen for years. But China is also seen as a more neutral mediator since it has close ties with both Saudi Arabia and Iran, giving it the appearance that it can transcend rivalry. Whereas the United States is absolutely strangling Iran with sanctions and, you know, it carries the historical baggage of numerous wars, their drone strikes, also support for brutal dictatorships. So it very much looks like China could displace the United States as the regional empire. Or they get to pose as this maker of peace in a land notorious for war. Right, a much needed PR boost for the country. Now with all this, as far as Biden's reaction to everything, uh, this is really all he had to say when a reporter asked him about it. The better the relations between Israel and the, the Arab neighbors, the better for everybody. And then, Britain's healthcare system is lurching into yet another crisis, and this one could be deadly. With as many as 61,000 junior doctors going on strike for the next three days over pay cuts, understaffing, and burnout. With this canceling tens of thousands of outpatient appointments, and unlike past healthcare strikes where the workers continued essential care, these doctors ain't fucking around. They're reportedly refusing to even work in areas providing life or death care, such as accidental and emergency critical care and maternity services. With this meant to maximize the pressure on the government, which has so far rebuffed the union's demands. And as far as what they want, they're requesting a 26% pay bump, though, they're calling it just a pay restoration because it only returns what they've lost from inflation since 2008. Which, key thing, means right now newly qualified medics in England make less than a barista at just over 14 pounds an hour. So you have many like this 27-year-old junior doctor describing how hard they've been squeezed in recent years. My pay is 14 pounds an hour, one four, and I am graduating with over 100,000 pounds of debt. I should be able to put my heating on and and not worry about that, not worry about getting through the month. It's not sustainable and we can't go on like this. Something needs to change. But all that said, talks between unions and the government broke down last week after the health secretary refused to even discuss the pay restoration. Instead, committing only to discussing a potential one-off payment and an unspecified pay rise for 2023-24. And so for everyone else in the country kind of just caught in the crossfire right now, be safe out there. Like, yes, in general, but especially over the next few days. And then, many in France are not happy today. And that's because President Macron's incredibly unpopular pension reform plan is still moving forward. With the Senate over the weekend voting 195 to 112 to raise the retirement age by two years to 64 years old. Though technically, this is not a law just yet. Sometime this week, it's gonna have to be reviewed by a joint committee of lower and upper house legislators. So there, experts aren't sure if it'll pass the lower chamber. And that's because Macron's party doesn't have the votes by itself. It's gonna need allies to join in as well. And so unsurprisingly, with 
this news, you have unions and friends calling for another day of nationwide strikes and protests, which I mean, these have been absolutely massive demonstrations. Right over the weekend, you had just under 400,000 people demonstrating, but the, the week prior, you had just under 1.3 million people demonstrating. But for now, we wait and see. Follow to stay in the loop. And then Fox News and Tucker Carlson are literally trying to rewrite the history of January 6th, I imagine, because they read Animal Farm and thought it was an instructional. Right last week, Carlson aired footage from the Capitol attack that had not been previously seen by the public. And that after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave Fox more than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from that day. And in the first release of that video, Carlson played a few edited clips arguing that they proved definitively that there was no deadly insurrection, but instead, this was just a peaceful gathering of Americans who were rightfully angry over an election that was stolen from them. With him even going on to claim that the limited videos that he showed totally undermined the hours and hours of violent footage that the public has seen, saying, Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. Now, anyone who has even half of one fucking brain cell knows that the fact that there was a few moments when people were not violent does not prove that violence never took place. Especially when we've literally seen so much video evidence of exactly that. But that's still exactly what Carlson is arguing here. The first thing you notice from viewing the full video record of January 6th is just how many people entered the Capitol building that day. Hundreds and hundreds of people, possibly thousands, over the course of about two hours. The crowd was enormous. A small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. You've seen their pictures again and again. But the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. So much of that is fundamentally wrong. First of all, even if not every single person broke windows and vandalized the Capitol, everyone who entered was literally trespassing illegally. We literally saw countless officers brutalized. And then you're shocked when you're seeing officers not engaging or trying to de-escalate. Illegally entering federal property is not sightseeing. And a five second clip here and there of two people looking at pamphlets doesn't prove that at all. Nor does it prove that they were peaceful, orderly, and meek. It totally ignores all the violence that took place even before the Capitol was breached. Right, again, there's tons of footage of many people violently pushing past barricades and police and breaking into the building. Once inside, there are videos of them storming all over the Capitol looking for lawmakers. That's not even the craziest bullshit Tucker said. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously revere the Capitol. They're there because they believe the election was stolen from them. They believe in the system. Cucker Tarlson's actually trying to make it seem like it was a normal fucking tour of the Capitol that interns give visitors every day. One video of people walking in a line does nothing to disprove the extensive footage of hundreds of people inside the building violently clashing with the police and pushing past authorities who are trying to block them from going further. They're not giving each other little fucking tours of the speaker's office. They're fucking breaking into the office to try and hurt or maybe even kill Pelosi, touching and stealing her things and taking pictures to prove it. Also beyond that, there was a lot of attention on Tucker's coverage of footage involving Jacob Chancellor aka QAnon shaman. Virtually every moment of his time inside the Capitol was caught on tape. The tapes show that Capitol Police never stopped Jacob Chansley. They helped him. They acted as his tour guides. Here's video of Chansley in the Senate chamber. Capitol Police officers take him to multiple entrances and even try to open locked doors for him. We counted at least nine officers who were within touching distance of unarmed Jacob Chansley. Not one of them even tried to slow him down. Chansley understood that Capitol Police were his allies. Video shows him giving thanks for them in a prayer 
on the floor of the Senate. But since this is widely circulated, you had prosecutors rejecting that characterization, saying in a filing that Carlson exclusively aired footage from a four-minute period between 2.56 and 3 p.m., but explaining that it was only at the very tail end of the hour-plus Chansley spent there, and pointing out that it omitted the ton of damaging evidence about his conduct with the attorney's writing. Prior to that time, Chansley had, amongst other acts, breached a police line at 2.09 p.m. with the mob, entered the Capitol during the initial breach of the building, and faced off with members of the U.S. Capitol Police for more than 30 minutes in front of the Senate chamber doors while elected officials, including the Vice President of the United States, were fleeing from the chamber. But still, since airing that initial segment, Tucker has continued to push this claim that Democrats and the media lied about what happened on January 6th, saying they tried to make it look more violent than it actually was while simultaneously hiding the real videos from the public, which is also a fucking fantastically ironic claim given the fact that other news outlets have since requested to see the footage that Carlson and Fox have been given, but McCarthy has so far refused to give it to anyone else, saying, yeah, it will eventually be released to all media organizations, but failing to indicate when that would actually happen. But if McCarthy's goal here is for the truth to be seen, then why not release it to everyone? Right, or is the truth that McCarthy just wants to use Carlson like the tool that he is, giving Tucker the exclusive ability to set the sole narrative here? Or in other words, McCarthy's basically giving Tucker the ability to gaslight the entire country for a certain period of time. Right, because once a trusted source for a group of people sets a narrative, it's hard to undo that. But with all that said, one of the questions with this story is, well, why would Tucker do this? And when I pose that question, I mean, in addition to the him being a lying scumbag for profit stuff. Because if you look at the whole situation, the time timing here is very suspect, right? It just so happens that he's trying to whitewash the January 6th insurrection the exact same week that his true feelings about Donald Trump were revealed in filings from the Dominion lawsuit, right? Those documents revealing that even while Carlson repeatedly defended Trump and his lies about the election to millions of people, he pretty brutally bashed him in private text, right? In the newest revealed text with his staffers just two days before the insurrection, Carlson wrote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. And later adding, I hate him passionately. Also in another text exchange with a producer Carlson wrote, Trump has two weeks left. Once he's out, he becomes incalculably less powerful even in the minds of his supporters. And adding, he's a demonic force, a destroyer, but he's not going to destroy us. I've been thinking about this every day for four years. Right, Carlson doesn't want supporters and Trump's base and conservatives in general to be talking about that. Let's let's whitewash January 6th. Right, his lying there is a showcasing to his fans and Trump supporters of, hey, I'm still on your team. I'm useful. And the incredibly concerning thing is, is with his fans, it's working. Which is why it's more more important than ever to remember and share the actual truth, right? Tuck Fuck uses Animal Farm as a how-to. We use it as a cautionary tale. But that is where today's show is going to end. Now, of course, with whatever stories matter most or stood out to you, I'd love to know your thoughts in those comments down below. But also, let me know how you like today's show in general, because you might not even notice it's formatted slightly different, and I'm kind of hoping I can use this as the template for how I want the show to move forward. Also, to give you a little tease, I have a very exciting announcement later this week. So you're going to get your regular Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday show, and then uh, announcement on Sunday. But with that said, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces, and I'll see you tomorrow.